Welcome to the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly podcast. I am very pleased to have Sumita Khatri as our guest today to discuss the current biologics of asthma. Dr. Khatri is a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine and Case Western University and director of the Asthma Center at the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Khatri, and we look forward to discussing this topic with you today. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Since the conversation in our last podcast, several biologics have been approved and more knowledge has been accumulated with current therapies. Today, we'd love to hear more about your experience and recommendations. First, what really inspired you to pursue your specialty and take care of patients with asthma. Thank you for having me. As I said, it's an exciting time to be an asthma specialist. I and mean, I love being a lung physician, uh, but asthma specifically has changed a lot in the last several years. I think our understanding of the different phenotypes of asthma and also having more therapies for the severe asthma patients has made it much more rewarding to take care of patients with asthma. Of course, most patients don't have severe asthma, and even that is rewarding because you hope that you can get them back to their prior level of functioning, and that is extremely rewarding. However, for those patients with severe asthma, especially those where 30% of severe asthma patients end up with high doses of oral steroids or high doses of inhaled steroids with their resulting comorbidities or side effects, you'd like to have other options for them. So it is really, really gratifying now to have biologics and other new therapeutic options available for us to take care of these patients. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Can you briefly tell us about the existing biologics of asthma and their place in therapeutic escalation? Certainly. Generally, to be a good asthma specialist, just like any other type of specialist, you want to be sure that it is truly asthma that you're treating. Oftentimes, asthma has many mimickers and also has the contribution of many confounders that make asthma more difficult to treat. So first and foremost, making sure it is asthma is important. Secondly, if you have a case of asthma, making sure that you're doing the best to control it with the available therapies, ensuring that the delivery system and adherence is appropriate. And then lastly, making sure that you're managing not just the triggers, but other confounders like reflux, A2P, sinus disease, other comorbidities such as obesity and sleep apnea, as well as barriers to care. You know, we know that there's many disparities with access to medications or the delivery devices. So after that is said and done, and one is, first of all, sure that it's asthma, and secondly, that all the barriers to care have been managed, that's when one would think if there's still lack of control of asthma symptoms, high use of steroids, uh, oral or inhaled steroids, high use of healthcare, emergency visits, exacerbations. These are all considerations when we think about advancing the therapies to more personalized care, which would be the biologic therapies. In the last several years, we have found that new innovations in the role of biologic therapy, anti-IL-5 therapy is more recent. About 10 years or more ago, we had anti-IgE therapy in the form of omalizumab, and that is the oldest biologic we have, which has a, still a very big role in atopic asthma. And then more recently, we have the IL-4, IL-13 receptor antagonist, dupilumab. So a lot has changed in the last five to 10 years. I was hoping you could comment on anti-IgE therapy because it was the first FDA-approved treatment for severe asthma, and if you could talk about your experience using those drugs. It was an exciting time when anti-IgE therapy came out. I remember that I was 
in practice at that time. And we had the new ICS lava combinations already at our disposal. However, there was still a subset of patients who were going to the emergency room quite a bit, suffering from ATP, from a perennial allergen like dust, or even seasonal allergies. And they were just presenting to the emergency room and hospital quite a bit. And when this anti-IgE therapy came along, which is such a novel idea that you're blocking the IgE from getting to the receptors on the mast cells and allowing for degranulation of those immediate inflammatory mediators, what a wonderful idea to just block that. We used to call it like a baseball glove. You're basically blocking that from releasing all these mediators. And we saw significant reductions in those ED visits and hospitalizations. And then to know that even children could benefit from this with a relatively safe uh, profile, except for, of course, those considerations of in the second dose onward, there could be some anaphylaxis. So we had to watch for that. However, we've seen people's lives changed due to the anti-IgE biologics. So that was the beginning of good things to come. I'd like to also mention that one of the added benefits of omalizumab therapy is that if you're able to gain control enough of the atopic asthma, then an allergist colleague of yours might be able to start allergen immunotherapy to try and reduce the severity of uh, that patient's asthma. So this has been a very useful mechanism by which we can get patients to a therapy that might actually alter the course of their asthma, in other words, allergy shots. So I find that to be something that I always think about in my patients with atopic asthma. In addition to the anti-IgE therapies, you also mentioned other biologics that are focused on blocking aberrant type 2 immune responses. Can you comment on the biologics that are focused on targeting the pro-inflammatory cytokine AL5 and its receptors and any experience you have with their clinical use? Certainly. Once we realized that IL-5 was such a large driver of eosinophilic inflammation in the type 2 cascade, whether it's allergic or non-allergic, we were excited to see that perhaps by either blocking the attachment of IL-5 to the IL-5 receptor or even just by blocking the IL-5 receptor itself, we could reduce eosinophil inflammation. So the first one that came out in 2015 was mepolizumab, and that was shown to decrease the rate of exacerbations by about 50%, and it improved asthma control and had a steroid sparing effect. So that used to be administered under supervision with an injectable syringe, but now there are auto-injectors that are available, which has helped the accessibility. This biologic seems to have a pretty good safety profile, more than five to seven years out. So that's a wonderful option. In 2016, reslizumab came out, and that is an intravenous weight-based anti-IL-5 therapy. And that also seemed to have even those similar effects. There are subtle differences in each one of these. We found that it seemed to have a higher predicted response if the eosinophil levels were higher at 400 or so absolute eosinophil count. In addition, we found for some patients with perhaps more obesity that if somehow the other anti-IL-5s didn't seem to be quite as useful, using the weight-based dosing seemed to have some therapeutic effects. So interestingly, sometimes one works better than the other, and it's not always easy to predict. So it's nice to have choices. And then in 2017, venralizumab was FDA approved, and it functioned by blocking IL-5 from being attached to the receptor. It blocked the receptor. 
And by doing so, it had a much more targeted cell killing phenomenon for the eosinophils, such that the eosinophils would be depleted practically to zero. And with that therapeutic strategy, you saw significant reduction of oral corticosteroid use and decreased hospitalization, and also noted some increase in lung function. So as you can see, these anti-IL-5 biologic therapeutics, although similar in its mechanism, have subtle differences. And it is really nice to have choices. Some patients may respond equally to all. Others may do better with one or the other. And some of it is really based on a conversation with the patient and the physician to determine what does a good outcome look like. Thank you so much for going over those biologics targeting IL-5 and its receptors. You mentioned also biologics that focused on IL-13 and IL-4. Can you please discuss the use of anti-IL-4 receptor alpha therapy and how inhibiting the actions of both IL-4 and IL-13 may benefit patients with severe asthma? As you mentioned, having other targets, other cytokines to to try and block or reduce is going to be the future, the ongoing future of asthma therapy. And so targeting the TH2 response through IL-4 and IL-13, which has a broader uh, upstream blocking effect, can be very helpful. In fact, when IL-4 and IL-3 together, which usually induces a class switch of B cells, allowing more production of allergen-specific IgE-producing plasma cells, when, when you're able to block that, imagine the allergic response that is able to be benefited from that. So we know that dupilumab is approved for moderate to severe asthma that's not well controlled with medium to high dose inhaled steroids. And that can easily be imagined by blocking this IL-4 and IL-13. In addition, blocking IL-4 and IL-13 can also improve atopic dermatitis and sinus disease, and there are indications for that for dupilumab as well, which is convenient. So for patients who have eosinophils that are high or just on these high-dose steroids, you don't always need to have a threshold to try dupilumab therapy. So obviously, asthma is tricky. It thinks about various ways to cause this airway inflammation, and the more varied responses we have to combat asthma in a precise sort of way, the better. So after you've made the decision to prescribe biologics, how long do you wait before determining if a patient is not responding, and how do you transition them from one biologic to the next? Determining whether or not to continue a biologic or try switching it or stopping it has been a topic of discussion ever since omalizumab. And there is general consensus, but not necessarily total agreement on how to determine this. However, General consensus is that one should wait at least three months to see whether there's a buildup of an effect that reduces that airway inflammation. But more often, people are thinking six to 12 months might be a more fair determination of whether the biologic is healthy. Of course, in some patients, it's obvious right away. They continue to get worse after three months, nothing's healthy. But it, it does help to have ahead of time a set of goals that will help you and your patient determine, is this working? Is it worth it? Is it helping or is it not? So generally, at least three months, but likely more six to 12 months is that general practice among those who take care of severe asthma regularly. So in addition to discussing this important decision with your patients, 
Are there any biomarkers or other clinical measures that you use to identify therapeutic failure? We have really tried to find the best biomarkers available to determine failure versus success of a therapy. However, there is no one biomarker that will tell you that it's working. So the best approach is to think through, again, a probably more of a composite score taking into account several factors and determining which are the priority ones. For instance, are we trying to take care of symptoms? Are we trying to improve lung function? Are we trying to reduce steroid use? Are you trying to look at eosinophilia, asthma control? Generally, I would say asthma control would make the most sense. That that is one that most of us would agree to. But then I think another close second is not only healthcare utilization and absenteeism and presenteeism, but also oral steroid use. We realize that much of the comorbidities that begin the cascade of severe asthma becoming uncontrolled, as well as the after effects of being on oral steroids for a long time with its resultant weight gain, metabolic syndrome, skin changes, et cetera, perhaps we're waiting a little too long to start these biologics. So that's a, pro- that's a uh, topic of discussion and debate at this time. What is the right time to even begin these biologics? And I think having, again, instead of a biomarker, there is an A biomarker for asthma. We should think about a composite score of agreed upon outcomes where the patient and the physician decides together. So you mentioned some of the more complex immune environments or comorbidities that exist in in many patients that have asthma or even severe asthma. And of the current approved biologics, can you tell us about your experience or maybe what characteristics make those patients fail to respond or be partial responders to biologics? You would think that you could figure that out, but honestly, it's difficult to determine. We have guidelines based on those clinical trials that are randomized and placebo-controlled, but that is also a very defined population. And often those of us who take care of patients in real life find that they don't all fit all the perfect criteria. The best thing to probably do is see what you're focusing on. So let's say lung function, or let's say oral steroid use, or asthma control. Focusing on what might be the best to try and get that patient there would be the first possible step to pick that biologic. But then if you, after three to six months, aren't getting there, then switching would be absolutely reasonable. But from a get-go, how to predict whether it's going to be helpful or not, we're not there yet. Sometimes it's a little bit of a best-case experience or just each patient's a little bit different. There's really not one way to determine who's going to respond or not. You mentioned when discussing the biologics, some of the extra pulmonary effects that they have. So I was hoping you could come back to that and comment on how these biologics can modulate extra pulmonary disease and other issues associated with severe asthma. It's nice to take advantage of the other effects of these biologic therapies. We want asthma to get better. Obviously, we want the airway inflammation to improve. However, what are the drivers of that airway inflammation? So for the, for instance, atopy, allergy, reducing allergic sensitization makes sense, obviously. With mepolizumab and uh, omalizumab, you see that. Sinus disease, for instance, with dupilumab, particularly with that indication, but we've also seen it with omalizumab and mepolizumab and reslizumab that you see a reduction in some of the sinus disease and polyps. In addition, adrenal insufficiency from constant chronic oral steroid use, you see a lot of that happening. People become steroid dependent and become adrenally insufficient. 
So as you reduce the steroids, you have to watch for that. But how wonderful to think that the adrenals are now coming back because we're not suppressing them. Similarly, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, weight gain, and we don't want the atopic asthma then to convert to the non-atopic metabolic asthma. We don't want that to happen. So how do we prevent that cascade? And then finally, the asthma pluses, right? The ABPAs and the EGPA syndromes. Now we do have indications for mefolizumab at higher dose to be used for EGPA. And I know others are being considered in clinical trials, but this is multi-system organ involvement. So there are very targeted and specific inflammatory mediators that we are inhibiting. How can we help our patients with these syndromes and comorbidities beyond asthma only? And I'm sure by targeting both pulmonary and extrapulmonary effects, patients may feel that the biologics are being helpful. Would you see that to be the case when they see improvement in more than one area? Patients definitely see the benefit of more than one area. They, they realize that, you know, even though perhaps they're wheezing, coughing, and can't breathe, uh, very well. They also have a feeling of fatigue and just not feeling well. I mean, it's amazing when you, if they say when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. It, it, it has an effect on every part of their body. So that improvement in quality of life, which actually I didn't mention so far, and I should have, which is patient reported outcomes of wellness and quality of life, along with those biomarkers and those measures are extremely important. People want to have meaningful lives. They want to not have to remember that they have a breathing problem. They want to forget about their asthma. And so a holistic approach, addressing all of these things, and we get those extra pulmonary effects that can be helpful for patient-reported outcomes, that can be beneficial. So we spent a lot of time today talking about the existing biologics of asthma, but I was hoping you could comment on what kind of new biologics are in the pipeline and may be available over the next few years. This last decade was just the beginning when it comes to asthma care. I know that asthma is very tricky. You know, it's a gene and environment condition, and it'll always keep us in business because it'll always find a way to affect our patients. However, as we understand the mechanisms of the initiation of the asthma cascade and figure out the areas specifically to target, we will find newer therapies. One of the exciting newer areas of discovery is around the pulmonary epithelium and the role it plays in the inflammatory cascade. And so when you're looking at these cytokines and these alarmins, such as IL-33 and IL-25, as well as TSLP, thymic stromolymphopoietin, which is released from the airway epithelial cells when it's exposed to allergens, fungi, viruses, pollutants, cigarette smoke. You can imagine that this is the area that has the susceptibility and that can cause all of the downstream effects that we are talking about, including the IL-5 and um, IL-4 and IL-13. However, being so upstream and specific to the epithelia, if we can block that alarm and try and reduce the predisposition not only to atopic asthma from an adaptive phenomenon, but also the innate immune response with the innate type 2 lymphoid cells. That could be another broad yet specific at the same time for asthma blockage that we would need for those individuals in which these other more targeted biologics do not work. So there's exciting options now. The anti-TSLP drug that's in the pipeline is tezepelumab, and 
has promised. So we're very excited. It's, it's going to be fun to explore the epithelium and see what we can do for that to maybe even reduce the ongoing disrepair and maybe alter the course of their uh, alter the course of their disease. So much more to come, much more to understand. We need scientists like you to help us discover more targets for us to take care of our patients. So we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you so very much for all your contributions to science and looking forward to this partnership. Thank you so much. Thanks also to you and all physicians who not only care for patients, but also pioneer advancements in science and medicine. I have to agree with you that collaboration is so important. Everyone can bring something different to the table, different experience, different knowledge, a different perspective. As a basic scientist myself, I'm definitely excited about continued clinical partnerships. It's really these collaborations that will lead to advancements in therapies for those patients with severe asthma. Thank you again, Dr. Khatri, for taking time to speak with us today. We look forward to hearing about new therapeutics and to continuing this conversation in the future. Thank you. It will be my pleasure.